very successful church, and the, the lead pastor retired, so they had to find another pastor. So they got together a pastoral search committee, and they started taking applications, and a year went by, and they had plenty of applications, but they still had never called anyone for an interview. And when the board asked them what's going on, they said, oh, no, they're just all of them have problems in their lives. All of them have faults. We don't want any of them. So one of the senior board members then called the committee about a week later and said, I have an applicant. I'm going to bring him in, and, um, or I'm going to bring you his, his resume. Let's have a meeting. So the committee got together. The board member came in. And he said, all right, here's his cover letter. To whom it may concern, understanding your pulpit is vacant, I should like to apply for the position. I have many qualifications. I've been a preacher with much success and also have had some success as a writer. Some say I'm a good organizer. I've been a leader most places I've been. I'm over 50 years of age. I have never preached in one place for more than a couple years. In some places, I have left town after my work caused riots and disturbances. I must admit I have been in jail three or four times, but not because of any real wrongdoing. My health is not good, though I still get a great deal done. I've not gotten along well with religious leaders in towns where I've preached. I am not too good at keeping records. I have been known to forget whom I baptized. However, if you can use me, I shall do my best for you. And so the board member asked the committee, well, what do you think? Let's call this guy and give him an interview. And they thought the board member was out of his mind. He's nuts. There's not a chance. And they were horrified. Why would an unhealthy, troublemaking, absent-minded ex-prisoner even apply for a pastoral job? Who in the world has the gall to send a resume to us? And the board member looked at each of them in the eye and said, well, the letter signed the Apostle Paul. <laughs> that was actually from a Dear Abby letter back in the 90s, and I'm sure most of you knew where it was going as I got into it. But I think it captures perfectly the mindset of these religious leaders that Jesus tells this parable to in our text this morning. And... Sadly, this is also the mindset of so much of Christianity today. A reason that this parable is as important to us as it was to the original audience that Jesus told it to. And even more so, our culture is in the midst of perhaps more than at any other time in history an us-them dynamic. And a paradigm that is about who is in, who is out, who is good, who is bad, who is us, who is them. And ultimately, when you bring that within the Christian church, the paradigm is ultimately about who does God love and who does God not love. So last week, we saw that it was into this very exclusive and preferential understanding of God that Jesus came. So many people, by the time Jesus came, were convinced that the Messianic banquet that God would throw at the end of time was open only to an elect and elite few. It was a strange yet seductive reimagining of the great vision of Isaiah's. Isaiah saw people from all nations and all walks of life gathered around God's table at the end of time. Yet a mere 700 years after Isaiah was given this vision, the people Jesus lived among had radically changed that story. And we looked at that in detail last week, so if you're interested in just how radical that story was changed, you can check out the um, teaching of the podcast there. And what I did last week after we went into an introduction to this parable is I, I, I 
I challenge us to ask ourselves questions throughout this week, to try to read the parable and ask ourselves questions. These are the questions that I hope some of us who were here last week were asking this week. In what ways might we have come to far different conclusions to God's story than what was originally intended? In what ways have we reduced the great vision of Isaiah's or St. John's? Who have we decided is in or out of the kingdom of God? What have we determined makes one in or out? And finally, whom do we think God loves or does not love? The answers to these questions ultimately define our understanding of God. You, you, can, you, you can talk about your theology, you can talk about the doctrines you believe, but in these simple questions, ultimately reveal the doctrines you believe in the theology you embrace. Regardless of what your mind might tell you. That's why I love that song I just played by Michael Clark. You know, just forget about what you know and believe. Believe in this crazy God that died for us. So, here's the thing. Jesus has his own understanding of God. And if he was God incarnate, his is probably the understanding we, we most want to be familiar with, right? Regardless of our own or what time has done, because time has done a lot to this biblical story. So, to help us know better his understanding of God, Jesus told this magnificent parable, the Great Banquet. It doesn't get a lot of press time, but I suggested last week that this parable makes is part of two chapters of Scripture, Luke 14 and 15, that I think uh, the pinnacle of the written revelation of who God was. This is, I believe, the, the pinnacle of our entire Scripture outside of when, what we celebrated. When, when God came in flesh and died, there, there is a complete revelation of who God is and what He is like. This is it in words that Jesus Himself gives us. This parable addresses these questions directly. Directly, if we let it, if we spend time in this parable. And it speaks to the grand assumptions we humans love to make about who is in and who is out. So, let's, let's sort of start to get into it. Little, little, one little more introduction that I love. So, in verses 7 through 24 in the passage that Joe just read for us, this word kaleo, which call, some translations invite, bid, this idea of elect, chosen, Jesus uses 12 times in this passage. Okay? Here's what I love. He takes irony and sarcasm and elevates it to an art form. It, I, Christ, you know, I know if, if you've lost, uh, if you've lost your passion for reading the Bible, or sometimes it's hard to get into it, I just, I just, I can't emphasize enough just trying to. Because once you get into it, it is the most brilliant piece of literature ever. It's brilliant. Okay? But here's, so he, here he is, he's taking this irony and sarcasm to an art form. But unlike us, we use irony and sarcasm bitterly and to be mean. He, he is just so gentle with this. You can almost, once you, once you get into this parable, and, and we introduced it last week, so you know why he's telling it, he, he's trying to tell it, is, and he just, you can see the sparkle in his eyes. See, 
he's surrounded by these men who are convinced they are in and others are out because they're the elect. And so Jesus says, oh, you want to talk about that? And then in his dialogue with them, he slides in the word for call no less than 12 times. This is what they are talking about. This is their understanding of God. And he's like, really? Let's talk about it. And he tells this parable. So Klein Snodgrass, he's a theologian, he explains it this way. Uh, I really like this. He says, to ask who will be at the banquet is to ask for the elect. And the parable provides an unexpected answer. The intent of the parable is that those who assume that they are elect and will be present at the end time banquet may not be. Attendance at the banquet is based on response to the invitation of God, not the title invited one or elect one, etc. The point of the parable of the great banquet can be summarized with a statement and a question. God is giving a party. Are you going to come? I love that. That was the opening quote today. God's giving a party. Are you going to come? So, let's get to the parable itself. So it starts off here. Jesus... So, and this is, we talked about this last week, but you know, this guy is talking about the end times and the banquet, and then Jesus replied with a parable. You always know Jesus is, when it doesn't make sense, Jesus is going deep after someone's misunderstanding of God. So, a little cultural context here might be needed to help us capture the scene. Bailey, who is, I refer to Bailey a lot, he lived in the Middle East for over 40 years, he studied Middle Eastern Christianity, and he just immersed himself in that culture, knows all about it. So he says that this language here is still used today. This language is still used today in the Middle East. And this is what happens. Someone's throwing a party, so they send out an invitation. Okay? Then, based on how many people said yes, the host plans accordingly. So on the day of the party, the correct amount of cattle and lambs and chickens are slaughtered and roasted. The dinner is prepared. Then a servant is sent to the invited guests, these people that have already said yes, to say, hey, Please come, everything is ready. It is at that point that excuses start. And people do not come to the party. It's not a rejection of the initial invitation per se. This is a detail that has to be captured as we dive into this. This is I love this parable. This is why we're, we're going to spend three weeks on it. So unbelievable. So, in our time and space, think of our weddings. Alright, so let's bring it. What, what would this mean in our time and space? So we send out invitations too, right? And based on how many positive replies come back, we plan accordingly, right? We invite 150 people to our wedding, 130 people say yes, we call the venue, we need 130 dinners. Okay, so that's sort of normal up until that point. So then the wedding day arrives, and the 130 people come to the ceremony, and they love it. And they even come into the bar and enjoy the open bar and the hors d'oeuvres while the wedding party is getting pictures. Then the banquet hall is open, ready for the feast, and that's when people start making excuses. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't stay for the dinner. I, I have to take my car to the mechanic. Um, I have to go to a doctor's appointment. I have to watch the Patriots. Uh, imagine that. Like, wrap your head around that. That here's these 130 guests that you've invited to your wedding. They've said yes. And then when the dinner's served, they say no. Think about that, okay? This is the scenario Jesus is painting. So, they make their excuses. 
The first said, I just bought a field and I must go and see it, please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. In an English translation of scripture without a lot of background, they sort of seem reasonable. Maybe. There's two ways to understand these excuses. And I think both ways of understanding them are legitimate readings of the parable, and they both can help further our understanding of God and our understanding of our own response to God. So Bailey, who is immersed in Middle Eastern culture and the original language and how it was always understood in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, he sees these excuses as inauthentic, they're lame, they're insulting, and even crude. All right, and here's how Bailey explains this. The first excuse seems credible enough. But in the Middle East, land is mostly desert with very little agricultural area. Okay? The negotiation for buying and selling a true field could take months or even years. And no one, no one would buy a field without spending a tremendous amount of time verifying its capacity for yielding a crop. See what a lame excuse that is? There's no way he bought a field and is now going to check it out in the Middle East. This would be the equivalent of a middle-class American, middle-class, not rich, not the people that can buy whatever they want, whenever they want, middle-class American whose biggest investment in their entire life is their home, and a guy like that calling up his wife from work saying, honey, I'm going to be late because I just bought a house over the phone and now I want to go look at it. Like, no, that doesn't happen ever, ever. The second excuse is the same thing. Oxen need to be tested before being bought, not after. These are pulling animals. They, they had to be looked at. And if they can't pull together, what good would it be? And the third excuse is the one Bailey sees as downright crude and offensive. Because he explains that in the original wording of this excuse is basically the equivalent of saying, I have a woman at the back of my house and I'm busy with her. I'm not coming. Now, in a society where speaking obscenely of one's wife is paramount to evil, this is totally unacceptable. And in fact, Bailey says, um, these three excuses are not genuine and indicate almost a malice toward the host. Almost a malice toward the host. Are you starting to just let this settle in and where maybe Jesus is going with this parable and where it speaks to us as individuals? I hope so. So, on the other hand, they said it could be understood. These excuses could be genuine, or at least as genuine as an excuse could be. And certainly in the English translation, we can read them and think, well, closing on a real estate purchase, buying a new vehicle because your old one died, you're um, getting married, these are all reasonable excuses for missing a party. Only the giver of an excuse, only the giver of an excuse is really capable of knowing whether or not it's genuine. Right? Only we know. When we tell someone why we can't do something, only we know if it's genuine or not. No one else will know. But here's the rub. And here is why I think exploring the excuses in both lights makes sense. Ready? Authentic or not, honest or not, any excuse for not accepting an invitation to the greatest party ever keeps one out of that party. I like the way Capon explains this. One of my favorite theologians. God, oh, I have it right here. I don't have to turn around. Sorry. <laughs> God will be as furious over legitimate excuses as he would be over phony ones, since in either case, the net result is the same. We keep ourselves out of reach of his gracious action. I love that. 
God loves us and wants that we are with him here and now, there and then, wherever he is, whenever he is. With him is life, only with him is life. There's no life outside of him, and he wants us to have life. So our rejection causes this anger. Then the owner of the house became angry. Our rejection causes this anger in God. But not because he is offended, though he would have every right to be offended by our rejection. But see, that's such a human understanding of God. This is why I'm always asking us, what do we think of God? What is he like? And if it looks human, maybe we should really think twice about that. If that scenario I painted earlier about a wedding happened to you, you would be grotesquely offended, wouldn't you? And rip it. But you would be angry because of the waste of your money, the rudeness of all those people that you invited to your wedding that you claim to know. That makes sense. That's a very human anger. But you're not angry because they're losing out on something. Surely none of us are that arrogant that we would think our wedding ceremony is life. It's just a party. God's not like us. God doesn't get a, if, if God can be offended by mortal, mostly horrible people, is he God? Or is he a human emperor? Or is, I mean, is he Prometheus? Maybe he's one of those gods, or Zeus. But God? If I, sorry, at 52, maybe it's because God has humbled me for so many years, I just don't have it anymore, but I, I know I can't offend God. And if I can't offend God, then he's not my God. If he's not, if he's that small. But angry, yes, because he hates to see his loved ones reject life. So see, I, I told you about these questions that we ask. This ultimately defines our understanding of God. What is God like? What is God like? What is your God like? And what does that mean if God is like that? See, people say to me, I often, people say to me, David, you don't believe God gets angry. And, and that's not true. I've never said that. I've never said that. I think he does get angry. If he really loves us, how could he watch man's collective inhumanity to man and not get angry? If Holocaust and genocide and rape and murder and politicians running around claiming to be Christians who aren't Christians don't make God angry, sorry, I had to slide that in. It's an <laughs> then what? Of course he's angry. My contention has never been and is not with an angry God. Never. I actually agree with Jonathan Edwards on there is an angry God. My contention is what does God do with his anger? Does he look like us? Retribution, punishment, exclusion, human ideas of justice, vengeance, eye for an eye, Jesus on a white horse with an AK-47? Does he really look like us? Or does he look like Jesus' idea of God? So, here's Jesus' idea of God when God gets angry. These are his details in Christ's revelation of who God is that we cannot afford to miss when he tells these kind of parables. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go kill all those. We're in church. No, that's not what happened. 
Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Grace. There's God's anger. Grace. And remember, we talked about this last week, crippled and blind and lame. And our world means unclean, unfit for the great banquet. Christians can read this as sinners. He ordered his servant, go get the sinners and bring them to my party. Grace. Grace. And so this begins to get to the heart of this parable of who is in and who is out. The people in accepted the invitation and came when the bank was served. The people out accepted the invitation, but made excuses not to come when the banquet banquet was served. Chosen, pedigree, title, ability to pay, goodness, being first, being great, being alive, all have nothing to do with it. Which is exactly why all of our excuses, valid or invalid, are all illegitimate for their ultimately rejection of the invitation. Their rejection of grace. See, there's only one way to receive grace. Recognize we need it. And stop holding on to everything else that makes us think we don't. Always. In the opening video I was going to play today, it's Joe Phillips, an old Christian singer that's um, this great live recording from a coffee house. And one of the lines he said, what's the point of calling out for a savior if there's, you have nothing to be saved from? We all need grace all the time. So, here's the connection that I hope we're starting to make. This isn't a gospel teaching. Except it is a gospel teaching. But what I mean by that is this is not a traditional gospel teaching where a lot of Christianity, and here's where I feel Christianity has shifted. We've taken the gospel and we've applied it to quote-unquote the lost. And then, once people are in, we teach them an entirely different theology. Jesus and God aren't into smoke and mirrors. They don't do that. It's the gospel for everybody all the time. And why I'm using this as a bridge from our summer series to our next series on Galatians is this is exactly what Galatians is all about. Paul is furious. Because people are leaving grace for something else. And they've convinced themselves that there's more and they need a new theology. And Paul says, who who taught you this? Who led you astray? And so in our own world and in our own lives, individually, not pointing fingers at anyone else, what about us? Where do we walk away from the gospel as Christians and demand things of people that we shouldn't be demanding of? How have we changed the great understanding of God in our lives and in each other's lives? Galatians gets to that. Grace is hard to believe in, especially when we get over needing it, or so we think we're over needing it, right? And that's when we start making everyone like that story I told at the beginning of the teaching. Who is this guy applying for this job? See? We religious folks have this way of getting beyond grace and thinking everyone else should be beyond grace. No. 
We all need grace all the time. So I'm going to end with these brilliant words of Kupan about this parable, about grace, about God. I'm just going to read them, hear them, then I'm going to put them up. And instead of a song after the teaching day, I'm just going to sort of leave that there in silence for a minute before we close in prayer. Do you see? The point is that none of the people who had a right to be at a proper party came. None of the people who had a right to be at a proper people came. And that all of the people who came had no right whatsoever to be there. Which means, therefore, that the one thing that has nothing to do with anything is rights. This parable says that we are going to be dealt with in spite of our deservings, not according to them. Grace, as portrayed here, works only on the untouchable, the unpardonable, and the unacceptable. It works, in short, by raising the dead, not by rewarding the living. So, God is throwing a party. We're all, because of his divine love, invited. I think on the basis that we're sitting here in church, we've probably all said yes to that invitation. But now the feast is being served. I hope we don't make excuses. Amen.